If you would please turn in your Bibles, we will be turning back to the Gospel of Matthew again for what is actually part two of a two-part series. If you'll recall, last week we looked at the very beginning of Matthew being Christmas and the angel's pronouncement to Joseph concerning Jesus that he would save his people from their sins. And now we look at kind of the bookend to this as we look at Jesus now who is raised from the dead and who rules and reigns as king. So last week we looked at Christ our Savior. This week we look at Christ our King. Now I'm going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 28 starting in verse 1 uh, before we get to focusing on our text so that we can set a good context. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now after the Sabbath... As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. And greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, for there they will see me. And then dropping down to verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubting. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we have read your word. I pray that you would give it just give it a sense of authority this morning, that we would receive it for what it is. These are the words of our King. These are our marching orders. I pray that you would give them weight and apply it to our hearts accordingly. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Please be seated. Now I had the privilege, oh, a month, five, six weeks ago, to sit in on one of my son's classes in college. And I was really excited because this is going to be a history class, and we all know how much I like history. And, of course, they started with a quiz. Now, I didn't take the test. I, um, but I, I found it interesting. I was appalled, actually. Students aren't required to read the assignment. They can use the book to answer the quizzes. And to ingratiate himself to the students, I assume the teacher said, here, let me give you the first two answers, or two of the ten. So, in following his lead, to ingratiate myself to you all, let me give you the one thing I want you to take away this morning before we get to the sermon in whole, as a whole. 
If you leave here this morning and you hear nothing else ringing in your ears, I want you to hear we must be about the king's business. We must be about the king's business. Now, everything else we say this morning is important. Don't just tune me out for the next 25 minutes or so. But we must be about the king's business. I really want that to sink in. Now, let me give you a brief quiz. This passage we just read, especially verses 18 to 20, is considered the Great Commission. But how many times in the Bible do we see the Great Commission in writing? Throw a number out there. How many times do we see the Great Commission in the Scriptures? Okay. You can count them on one hand, but it takes the whole hand. Five times in the Scriptures we see the Great Commission. The one we just read... Also in Mark 16, where he says, Go and preach the gospel to all the nations. In Luke 24, 47 and 48, it takes a slightly different flavor. He says, You will be my witnesses. Uh, in John 20, 21, again, a little bit different. Jesus tells his disciples, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So if you're not looking for that one, you might skip right over it, but surely it's in there. And then the one many of us forget about, but we, we know it when we hear it, is Acts chapter 1 where he says, you will be my witnesses here in Judea and Samaria, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So five different times the Great Commission is recorded for us in the Scriptures. And if you look carefully, this was said on at least three different occasions following the resurrection. At least three different occasions, possibly four Maybe even five if you compare the the scriptures back and forth. But at least three. So this is something that Jesus, after his resurrection, said repeatedly. And especially if you go to the one in Acts chapter 1, he said it as the last thing, as far as his earthly words are concerned, to his disciples. Now, I remember preaching a sermon about a a year or so ago called Last Words. And at the time I introduced that, I said... Can you imagine how important maybe last words could be? You know, the last thing on your mind, not just the last words you say maybe when it's time to pass on, but maybe the last words before you leave to go somewhere. You want somebody to remember something. There's often this this poignant parting. And so the last words count. They carry a certain weight. So here not only have we said it repeatedly, but we said it last. And so we must give this commands, this, this word, its proper weight. And so again, like last week, we're also going to make a few comparisons here between the different versions. Um, the, the, the great commission that we find here in our passage, Matthew, he alone makes this unique appeal to authority. I find that interesting. If you compare the rest of them, you take Matthew and Mark. And here we have direct commands where he says, go and preach the gospel. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. But the others listed don't make commands. In fact, they give theirs as a statement of fact. It's just just a different way of saying it, but I find that interesting. And then again, in Matthew alone, we have the promise of Christ's presence with his followers, with his disciples. Now, Luke and Acts give a promise of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. But here alone, Jesus says in verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we will look at that a little bit more as we go along. Now, again, there are some things about the book of Matthew more generally unique to the book of Matthew that I think has some importance for what we're studying this morning. 
there are more Old Testament connections in Matthew than any of the other Gospels. You know, so this has something to do with Matthew's purpose. What is he trying to do here? And he is making connections. He's basically, if I had to sum it up, saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our expectations. And that is, he didn't come just as Savior, but that includes this teaching that Jesus is the King. And he is the fulfillment of this long-expected Messiah, this anointed one that God was going to send. So there are more Old Testament connections. Ten to fourteen of those are unique to Matthew, and we find them nowhere else. There's a greater emphasis on the kingdom in Matthew. For some reason, Matthew, when he sits down to write, gives us a greater emphasis on the kingdom. In the book of John, the word kingdom is only used five times. In the Gospel of Mark, the word kingdom is only used 20 times. Now Luke shares a lot more similarities with Matthew, and he uses the word kingdom or kingdom of God 45 times. But in Matthew, who for some reason chooses the kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God, but kingdom or kingdom of heaven, he uses this a total of 55 times. And so we would have to say this is a major theme of Matthew has to be. It's not the only theme in Matthew, but it's a major theme, this idea of the kingdom. And while it's not my purpose this morning to give you a whole doctrine of the presence of the kingdom of God, we cannot pass this up because this sets the context in which Jesus is speaking here following the resurrection. So let me just give you a summary of Matthew's teaching on the kingdom. The promised eschatological kingdom has dawned. This was the hope of Israel inaugurated by the life, death, and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, who is the long-awaited king. That's the teaching of Matthew on the kingdom. The problem is, or, or the problem that Matthew is trying to address here, is because that was not necessarily the widespread expectation of the Jews at the time. Either through error or an unbalance in teaching, as they looked at the Old Testament, or as the the Pharisees and Sadducees in this intertestamental period had taught, the emphasis became to be changed, and over the centuries there were errors made. And so the expectation was that God was going to send a Messiah who was going to set up an earthly kingdom and rule over this kingdom by his Messiah, the king, with Israel at the pinnacle. So when the Jews were expecting the kingdom... They were expecting they would be top dog in the new world order. And they expected this to all happen at one time, so that when the Messiah showed up, it was finally time for rejoicing because we would now be restored to our rightful place as God's chosen people, ruling over the earth. Now, it takes a lot of truth to float in error. There's a lot of truth in that statement. Okay, God is building a kingdom. God will rule over the earth through his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King. God's people, his special possession, have a special place in the kingdom. But yet it did not come all at once. And so there was confusion, and that was Matthew's goal here, is to straighten out the confusion. Whereas the Jews expected this age that was to end when the Messiah Messiah showed up, and the kingdom to begin, but yet it did not come that way. But that does not mean that it did not come at all. And Matthew is out to correct them, to teach them, that although Jesus didn't match their expectations, and then somehow to top it all off, he got himself killed, but yet still he is the king. 
So Matthew sets out to correct and establish the reality of the kingdom. He does this in many ways. We see at the beginning of the book, John the Baptist comes around and he starts preaching first. And one of the first things recorded that John says is, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Here it is. It's coming. In fact, they thought John might be the Messiah. And he said, No, it's not me. I'm the one preparing the way. The king is coming following me. But the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus shows up in the first part of the content of his teaching. Repent, for the kingdom is here. And the kingdom is tied up in the person of the king. Now, throughout Matthew, we see much evidence of this. It is not just these pronouncements. We see Jesus, throughout his ministry, there are healings. There are healings. Evidence of the power of the kingdom over the curse because of sin. There is Jesus on the lake in the storm saying, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves die down. The exercise of the authority of the kingdom of God over the creation itself. We see Jesus teaching as one who had authority. I find that fascinating. That really threw the Pharisees' understanding too. Uh, The common teaching of the day would have been an appeal to commentaries. Appeal to the teachings of the fathers of the other Pharisees who had passed these things down. But Jesus said, no, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. He's teaching as one who had authority. He forgave sins. That really shocked some people. Who is this man to forgive sins? Well, just so you know that the Son of Man has the power, the ability, the position to forgive sins, I say to this paralytic, get up and walk. He forgives sins. In all of these things, Matthew is trying to tell people that the kingdom may not have come like you expected, but the kingdom did indeed come because the king has come. Maybe not as expected, not in its final glory and fullness, which is still to come when the king returns, but the kingdom has come really and truly. And now, Jesus, having been raised from the dead, as proof that he is God's king, the anointed one, the appointed one, the king, now Jesus meets with his disciples and declares this, his last earthly words. You would think that would matter. Now, I know that's a long introduction. Don't worry. That's not an hour and a half sermon. That's just the introduction. But we're going to look at our passage now in just three basic points because it divides so easily that way by three different verses. We're going to look at a claim. We're going to look at the command. And then we're going to look at our confidence. Claim, command, and confidence. Now, if you want a four-point outline, you could say context. (laughs) Claim, command, and confidence. But this is where we're going to go this morning. Our claim. First of all, Jesus shows up and he makes a claim. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. This is verse 18. Authority. The idea attached to this word is one of absolute power. And not just power, but the right to give a command. And Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. Now, hadn't he already had authority? I mean, that's part of what I just told you. He, had, he taught with authority. He had authority over the demons, the unclean spirits. He had authority over nature. He had authority over illness. But yet here he claims, all authority has been given to me. Now, maybe the disciples had been shaken. After all, they'd seen their Lord, their King, crucified. So maybe he needed to reestablish this fact. But hadn't he already had authority? And, of course, the answer, like many things, when you go to study the Bible, is yes and no. 
He did exercise authority. He did do all these things. But that doesn't mean he had all authority. He had authority to teach, heal, command the waters and the seas. He had the authority to forgive sins. But what did he not have? Well, if you would, let's turn to another familiar passage in the book of Philippians chapter 2. And I do want you to take the time to look there, though briefly. Chapter 2, just starting in verse 6, speaking of the Christ, Christ Jesus himself, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he did exist as God in his pre-incarnate state, yet he emptied himself. Emptied himself. I think part of what he emptied himself was was the free exercise of his prerogatives as the eternal second person of the Godhead. He came under the command of his Father and he said, I gladly come to do the will of my Father. He came in this sense or this attitude of submission, willing to suffer the humiliation of death and a cross. When taking on this full humanity he, so that he could suffer and die for the sins of a fallen humanity, he somehow also gave up some of those prerogatives, and so he did not exercise full authority. He submitted to the will of the Father. So he gave up the exercise of some of his prerogatives, and here it says that he was submitted to the Father, even obedient to the point of death. But that's not where the story ends. If we look back at verse 9, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So because of his willing obedience, he was given a name, so that at the name of Jesus, by the way, the name is not Jesus, Have you ever wondered in this passage? Remember last week we talked about Jesus and how widespread that name would have been? How people would have named their kids Jesus or Joshua from the Old Testament, you know, to honor their heroes that have gone before. So there's something about this Jesus. But that's not the name we're talking about here. The name of Jesus is the name that was given to Jesus, the name that came into the possession of Jesus. So it's not Jesus himself, but it's the title we find down in verse 11, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This title here is the one that signifies that he now holds all authority. Because of his humiliation, God has now raised him up and seated him at his right hand in the place of authority. So when Jesus shows up back in our passage and says, all authority has been given to me, he's saying that due to his, his human mission, where he takes on the full humanity and suffers and dies for his people, now he has been rewarded in the place of honor with all authority. And so when he shows up to speak to his disciples, this is his claim. All authority has been given to me. And then he backs it up by saying, in heaven and on earth. Now, in Genesis 1, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth, what does that mean God created? Just the heavens and the earth? No, heavens and the earth, it's something called a merism. So when he says he created the heavens and the earth, it means he created everything. And so here, when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he's saying, all authority. There is nothing left out. There is no inch of God's creation that has been not given into the control of the Son of God who now sits at his right hand. He is Lord. He is set over all in the heavens. 
And he has authority over all. And there is no exception to his authority. We see in Colossians 1.18 that he is also now head of the body, the church. Due to his suffering and death and resurrection, he is the firstborn among the dead, that he might have first place in everything. So when he says, I have all authority, that's another way of saying, let's listen up. Listen up. I'm about to say something that you need to pay attention to. All authority has been given to me now. Hear me. Must be important. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing and teaching them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Go make disciples of all the nations. The word disciples just simply denotes an apprentice, someone who is an adherent to your teaching, one who follows a way that has been communicated, a person, one who follows a person. A disciple is a follower, one who gives himself to the training, to the following, gives himself to the same task which his master had given himself to. Now this begins, obviously, with evangelism, where the call goes out to sinners that they should believe in and follow the king. Obviously, we're not the ones that convert them. We talked about this some last week. However, we are the ones that take the message forward. We declare the gospel. That's where this task begins. You know, Paul has an interesting phrase in Colossians 1, verse 24, where he says, I do fill up in my flesh that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That can be a hard one to understand. What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? For we teach that the atonement was full and final in the Lord Jesus, that he himself died for sins and he was a sufficient sacrifice for those sins and so that those sins are paid in full. So that when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, we mean that the atonement is finished. So what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And what we're saying here this morning is that what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, along with Paul, is, that, is the delivery of this message. Jesus did his part. Jesus taught and preached while he was here. Jesus suffered and died. Jesus was raised from the dead. But now he tells us to go and tell. Go and give this message. It's the delivery of the gospel. It is the ministry of propagation rather than the ministry of propitiation. But we are to go tell. And as we are doing this, as part of the task of making disciples, he gives us a couple of modifying participles here. Not that you care about the grammar. But it's important, we are to go make disciples, and while doing this, we are baptizing them in the name of the Father, we are teaching them to observe all that he commanded, all that he, speaking of Jesus. So this idea of baptizing is the administration of the sacrament, which identifies the person who has come to faith in Christ, initiates them into the body, confirms Christ's faithfulness to this new believer, and of their interest in him. This is the ministry of the sacraments. This is the blessing of the sacraments given to the new convert and then teaching all that Christ has commanded. Now, this is not just content. Surely, Christ has given us enough content. We've got four Gospels here. Some of things are unique in each one. A lot of them are repeated, but there's a lot there, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Then we have all the epistles and all the explanation of the Gospels that they give us, and so they explain and apply for us so that we learn how to walk in this new life. And we are to be teaching all that Christ has commanded and all that that means for us in this life. But it's not just the content 
though the emphasis is on content since God has given us a written word, but it is also teaching them to do it as Christ, to do it in the same manner that Christ did it, to do it in the same heart attitude in which Christ served, to do it in the same humility. All these things still derived from the word. So it's content, it's manner as we go about teaching them to walk as their Savior walked. So as we are making disciples, we are baptizing and teaching. And I have to point out here that if you summarize these things, this is simply the ministry of the word and sacraments, which are God's provision for the church. Word and sacraments. We need no other. And I have been asked once or twice, I don't do a lot of counseling. Nobody comes to me for advice. I understand that. (laughs) I do. But when they do, I point them to the word. And tell them to avail themselves of the sacraments because this is what God has provided for your spiritual well-being. This is what God has given the church. You know, and too often we're ready to run off to the latest devotional book or the latest conference looking for something new or some emotional charge when all this time we have this. We have been entrusted with the ministry of the word and the sacraments for the fulfilling of the Great Commission. And this is where our focus must be as the church, because this is where God has pointed us. Even here in his Great Commission, teaching and baptizing, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. We are the means of the delivery of the message. This is the means and the content of all that we are to teach and do. So the command is to go and tell. And what I hope you will be repeating in your heads before you leave here, we must be about the king's business. This is what the king has said to do. Now, it seems daunting. That's a hard task, is it not? Here's Jesus appearing to his disciples shortly after being raised from the dead. He says, go conquer the world with this message. There's maybe 11 men standing there. Maybe they brought a few stragglers. There's a few more back in Jerusalem. But this is a small band of men being told, go conquer the world now with this message of the king. And if you're like me, and I'm sure like them, fearful, worried. So we have the claim, and then we have the command to go tell. But then we look at our last point, confidence. Jesus understanding that we are merely human. Not, not fully human, merely human, sinful human. We deal with frailties. We have our weaknesses. We have our fears. So Jesus speaks to them at the very end of verse 20 and says, And lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is our confidence. I am with you always, even to the end of the This king, this same Jesus, who did all that we talked about through the Gospels, This king is with you. And the grammar here is really interesting because if you put it together, it says, I, myself, even me, me, I will be with you. He's not promising just another. He says, I will be with you always. Now, in Luke and then in Acts, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it must be said that, yes, Christ is present with you personally, but he's, and he's present with you spiritually. He's with you by his spirit. But that does not mean it's not Jesus. Jesus is with you. By the Spirit of Christ, I myself am with you. He says, I am presently with you, which is interesting. He doesn't say, I will be with you. I am with you in this eternal present. I am presently with you. So when you're in a situation, I remember speaking to another pastor who said he can preach before a thousand people, but he once got shouted down by about a six-year-old on a plane and embarrassed him to death. And at that point, he felt very alone. (laughs) He felt like the oddball. 
in a sea of 150 people, right? I am with you. You are not alone. He says, I'm not only am I with you, I myself am with you. I am presently with you. He says, I am always with you. He uses the word always again. I am with you always and backs it up even to the end of the age. I am with you always and to the end. And this is supposed to be for the disciples and for us an antidote for fear of intimidation, the antidote for the embarrassment because we feel like an oddball, the antidote to what one pastor called the tyranny of the raised eyebrow. For when we preach the gospel and somebody looks at you like, what? The eyebrow goes up. That's right. But here's the antidote. Because the king is with you. You are not alone. I am with you always, even to the end. So he has provided us the content. He's given us the command to go. And he's given us this confidence that he will not leave us alone. So don't give in to your feelings. Don't give in to your fears. But walk in faith. Because the word of God says that Christ is with you. Christ himself is with you. And we must be about the king's business. Now, the command is clear, is it not? And certainly the one speaking has the authority to give us this command. So what are we to do? Coca-Cola in less than 100 years has conquered the world. McDonald's maybe in less than 70 with a pretty sorry burger but some good fries. But they've conquered the world. Have they not? And the church hasn't done it in 2,000 years. Is it a lack of love for lost people? I certainly can understand that because if I have to be honest with you, not all people are very lovable. You know, they don't all smell good. Their company is not always desirable. They don't necessarily like us. But yet the command is clear we've been given a task. I think what helps me in times like this is we have to raise our sights to a higher love. We need to love the king more. And having loved him and having getting caught up and consumed with a desire to see the glory of his kingdom in all its fullness, then we turn and we love others for his sake. So is it a lack of love? I sometimes think it's a lack of a healthy self-interest. Now, there's obviously an unhealthy self-interest. But then I think there's a certain self-interest that we maybe need to cultivate a little bit more. And it has something to do with this presence of God with us. And I can't help but wonder that there is so little of the sense of God's presence with us because we're not busy doing the king's work. We want the comforts and the peace and we want to know that God is near. But yet we don't do what God said. You know, I've read quite a few missionary biographies. It's a, just a kind of a habit or a hobby of mine over the years. I read one recently about John G. Payton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides, which is a small island group in the South Pacific back in the late 1800s called Vanuatu today. And he went to an island that was still, still, I don't know what they are today. He went to an island, though, that was full of cannibals. And he wasn't the first missionary to go. The others had been killed and eaten. And yet... This, this young Scottish missionary, Scottish Presbyterian missionary, by the way, went to these islands in the South Pacific and stayed for a period of four or five years, buried his first wife and child there under near constant threat. But for some reason, the natives tolerated him for a while. But at the end of this four or five years, it became clear that their toleration was wearing thin, and he had to flee for his life. And while waiting for a boat to come pick him up, which didn't come at the desired time, and night fell, he hid in a tree. Hid in a tree. 
Well, you could hear the natives all walking by in the jungle looking for him, maybe protected by the hand of God, who must have been, hid in a tree. Years later, looking back and writing about this, he said, I could almost wish to be in that tree again for the comfort that Christ ministered to me personally that night. He was about the king's business, and God was faithful to him. So I wonder... Maybe we need a stronger self-interest. I have found myself at times with some of these biographies envious of these missionaries for the, the sense of the presence of God, the communion they have with him. But I haven't yet had the guts to be enough about the Father's business. So whatever the excuse, whatever our failures, whatever our problems, we must be about the king's business. We have a message to get out. There's a clear command. And the message summed up is this, that there is a God who is holy, just, and good, and who hates sin but does not desire the death of the wicked. Mankind being separated from this God because of his sins and under his judgment. But God does not end it there. But God in love for his people has given his son whom he has now made king. He has given Jesus to die for sinners so that all who will come in faith will be reconciled to him, forgiven and made children of this God. That's our message. Find your own words. Find a way to say it. But get it said. And so, as we enter a new year, and I'm not one to make New Year's resolutions to be honest because either I'm lazy or I figure who does them anyway, but... It's the first day of the year. I can't ignore it's the first day of the year. So I have a challenge for you. I want you to find somebody who needs to hear the gospel once a month in this coming year, and I want you to tell them. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's easy for him to say. But let me give you a secret. (laughs) I can talk to a room of 100. This doesn't bother me a bit. I can't talk to one person one-on-one very well. That's where I get intimidated. I do not set people at ease because I am not at ease. I'm not Mr. Warm and Fuzzy. Okay, I stumble over the words at times like that. I'm saying this as much for me as for you, but I'm asking you to join me because we must be about the king's business. If 100 people do this once a month, then next year this time the gospel will have been shared 1,200 times with people who've not heard it. And you can't tell me you don't know them. I've been watching since I've been preparing this. I have like three new neighbors in my neighborhood. I don't know them. Maybe they're believers. But I have new people out there. I have new employees who I've never shared the gospel with before. You know someone. Surely in a year's time you can find 12. And I'm asking you to do it. And let's see what the king will do. And even if not, let's be faithful because we must be about the king's business. And I think we might be surprised at what a little bit of effort done steadily, done consistently, will accomplish by God's grace. So join with me this year and let's be about the king's business. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word and I pray that you would now add weight to it. Lord, not to consume your people with guilt for their failures, but to inspire them to go out and be about the king's business with the promise that you will be there. You are always there. So glorify your son. Build your kingdom. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.